just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. This podcast is back for the new year, along with an array of special guests lined up for the months ahead. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Joanna Cherry, the SNP's Justice and Home Affairs spokesperson and the prolific QC. Cherry entered Parliament in 2015 as part of the SNP general election landslide in the wake of the independence referendum. The MP for Edinburgh South West has since carved out a reputation as one of her party's most determined MPs. Last year, she made headlines across the world thanks to her efforts for the legal challenge against Boris Johnson's decision to prorogue Parliament. Cherry was a leading litigant in the Scottish court case, which was successful and then brought to the Supreme Court. Her legal challenge resulted in the Prime Minister's prorogation being declared unlawful and Parliament returning immediately, or continuing as in fact it was never suspended in the first place. Prior to pursuing a career in politics, Cherry practised as an advocate for 20 years. She became a QC in 2009 and was ranked as one of the leading QCs in Scotland by the Legal 500. Cherry is a passionate advocate for Scottish independence, and after the SNP's big wins in the 2019 SNAP election, she is one of a number of MPs arguing that the case for a second referendum has never been more potent. So thank you for joining us today, Joanna. Before we move on to today's political situation, on this podcast we like to begin by turning back the hands of time and looking to what you were doing before politics. So going to your early life, you grew up in Edinburgh where you are now an MP and you attended a convent school in the city. That's right. Um, So was religion a large part of your upbringing? Yeah, I mean, both of my parents are very committed practising Catholics and so they were very keen that I went to a Catholic school. So I went to a Catholic state primary called Holy Cross in Leith, a very well-known Edinburgh school. And then I went to a small girls convent school on the south side of Edinburgh for my secondary. No longer there, unfortunately, as it was a lovely school and I was very happy there. And would you say it was a particularly political upbringing? Was politics something your parents discussed much? Yeah, um, I mean, my mum's from the west of Ireland and she says that she tried hard not to bring myself and my sister up to be rampant Irish nationalists and instead we turned out to be rampant Scottish nationalists. Variation. But uh, Yeah, but I'm, I'm also an Irish nationalist, I would hasten to add. But yeah, politics was something we talked about a lot. I mean, my dad started out as a Labour man but has been an SNP supporter since the days of Winnie Ewing's famous by-election victory in 1967, which was just a year after I was born. Very much encouraged, particularly by my mum, to read Irish and Scottish literature and to read Irish and Scottish poetry and very much brought up in, in the Celtic tradition by both parents, yeah. And you attended university in Edinburgh, you studied law. I was wondering, do you get involved in student politics much? Because um, you belong to the Young Scottish Nationalists as a team. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, I was chatting to Ian Blackford, the leader of the SNP Westminster Group recently, and he'd been sorting out his attic, and he found the minutes of the inaugural branch meeting of the Young Scottish Nationalists in Edinburgh in 1980, when I would have been 14, and the founding committee of the Young Scottish Nationalists in Edinburgh was myself, Ian Blackford and John Swinney, who of course 
course, is now the Deputy First Minister. So that was 1980. Successful crop. Yeah, well, yeah, but, but by the time I was at university, I'd actually joined the Labour Party because like a lot of people on the nationalist left, I became very disillusioned with the SNP as a teenager when the 79 group of now prominent SNP politicians like Alex Salmond and Kenny McCaskill were expelled from the party. And uh, after the SNP lost so many seats in the election which brought Mrs Thatcher to power, it seemed to me that the SNP had really moved to the right and were a bit of an irrelevance. And so I joined the Labour Party and was very involved in student politics as a member of Labour students when I was at Edinburgh University. Now, looking to your career, you clearly have had a very distinguished legal career. In 2009, you were appointed a Queen's Counsel. What would you say has been your proudest achievement from your legal career prior to entering Parliament? Probably my proudest achievement was taking silk. I was very proud of that. But also, I think the first time I appeared uh, in the UK Supreme Court, which of course is the highest court in civil matters for Scotland as well as England, and also as a result of devolution in human rights-based appeals. And I appeared for the Lord Advocate in a series of cases uh, that were known as the Sons and Grandsons of Cadder. There were cases flowing from a big decision of the UK Supreme Court, which underlined that it was important that suspects, when being interviewed by the police, had the benefit of legal advice in advance. And there were various spin-offs from those cases, and I appeared for the Lord Advocate in those cases at the UK Supreme Court and won them, and I was very proud to have been involved in those cases. It was also the most nerve-wracking moment of my career appearing in the UK Supreme Court, although I will say that the UK Supreme Court are very civil, and it's a very civilised atmosphere. If you've been brought up in the tradition of the Scottish Criminal Appeal Court, which is a bit of a bear pit, I think you can survive most things. And at that point in your career, did you feel like you stood out as a female in your profession? Did it feel like it was majorly male or did it never really feel like an issue? I won't say it's not been an issue but there are other very strong female characters in the Scottish Bar, the second most senior judge in Scotland, the Lord Justice Clark, Leona Dorian QC was very much a role model for me in my career and also my colleague Dorothy Bain QC who set up the National Sex Crimes Unit in Edinburgh which was a specialist team of sexual crimes prosecutors which I worked in for three years with Dorothy so there are quite a lot of trail female trailblazers at the Scottish Bar and I would have to say I encountered considerably less misogyny at the Scottish Bar than I've encountered in politics. At what point did you start to think, I potentially want to leave my very successful legal career and move to a political one? Well, when I was growing up, one of my ambitions was to be an MP, although probably in my later teens, my ambition was to be a Labour MP. (laughs) I've ended up being an SNP MP. Still got time. (laughs) No, I'm quite happy where I am. Thanks very much. Although I do wish my friends and colleagues in the English Labour Party well with rebuilding their party, because I think it's important that there's a a strong voice on the left of English and British politics. We've got one in Scotland with the SNP, but I think it's important that Labour rebuild themselves in England. But no, I mean, I suppose I never really dismissed the possibility of a political career. But what got me really interested was the independence referendum campaign. Towards the end of that campaign, the last six months, quite a lot of special interest groups were set up. And I set up with one of my colleagues at the bar, a group called Lawyers for Yes. And we very much campaigned around issues of interest to lawyers who supported an an independent Scotland, such as the need to have a written constitution, the manner in which an independent Scotland could rejoin the European Union and things along those lines. So that really got me enthused and I, I got very involved as a, a commentator and, a, a, and for the Yes campaign. 
And as history shows in that referendum, the yes side did, did not win. But you then have a general election, 2015. You are chosen to represent your seat in Edinburgh, which is Alistair Darling's old seat. And you win it. Did you expect to win it or did it come as a surprise? Because it was a pretty solidly Labour seat. It was was a very big swing and it was part of a a general trend. I mean, the history of the seat is quite interesting because it was previously a solidly Conservative seat. It was Malcolm Rifkin's seat. And my colleague at the bar, Linda Clark, was a Labour MP and then Alistair Darling. But... The reason how it came about was after we'd lost the referendum, I think Alex Salmond was the first person to realise that if the 45% who'd voted yes voted SNP, then the SNP would have a landslide at the general election. And he was very keen as the outgoing leader of the SNP that we get candidates from all walks of life and candidates, people like myself and Dr Philippa Whitford, who had a hinterland outside politics, because I think... Not so much Alistair Darling, for whom I have a fair bit of respect, but many of the Labour MPs who the SNP ousted in 2015 had been missing in action in Scottish politics for years and looked very stale. And I think Alec was keen that the SNP have some fresh faces. So it was Alec Salmond who first suggested to me that I should stand against Alistair Darling in Edinburgh South West. That was before Alistair decided he was going to retire and go to the House of Lords. And actually, when Alec suggested that to me, I asked him if he was off his head. In fact, I actually said to him, if it wasn't you, I would say you were off your head. Because it seemed to me at that stage unthinkable that the SNP would win seats in Edinburgh, let alone Edinburgh South West. But I went ahead and went through vetting and went through a very competitive selection process because lots of people wanted to stand for the SNP in 2015. And I got selected for the seat. And really, as soon as I started campaigning, I realised it was likely that I was going to win the seat. Now, you've mentioned that it was at one point a childhood ambition to be an MP. Mm. But I wonder, I mean, a lot of people do dream of being elected to Westminster. But if you are a Scottish nationalist, it's perhaps a slightly mixed range of emotions because ultimately you've succeeded, you've won your vote, which is a good thing, but you've been elected to an institution in theory you'd rather not even be a part of in Westminster. Yeah, I mean, my ultimate ambition is to be a member of Parliament in an independent Scotland. But for so long as Scotland remains part of the United Kingdom, it's really important that the SNP have strong representation at Westminster. And I think you can see if you look at the history of the last few years of politics that the SNP presence has been very much felt at Westminster and indeed the presence of Scotland in a way it hadn't been for many decades. Now, of course, there were outstanding individuals from Scottish politics such as Donald Dewar, Gordon Brown, Douglas Alexander you know, who had a strong voice at Westminster, but it's it's been a quite different thing to have a big block of MPs speaking up for Scottish interests as a block. I think we've made a big difference. So, yeah, it's been useful for us to be at Westminster. Now, when it comes to things that surprise you about Parliament, it's been written that you were originally put off a career in politics because of, you had some fears about homophobia, yeah. uh, about it being an issue. You're openly gay. Did that come to fruition? Do you think... No. Have you had any issues like that? Well, I have had some issues laterally, which I'll come to in a moment. But I think, yeah, I mean, when I was growing up and in my late teens realising that I was a lesbian, at that time it seemed to me that I couldn't have a political career. I was horrified by the treatment of Peter Tatchell during the Bermondsey by-election in the early 80s. And although there were brave people like Chris Smith and, and Angela Eagle who came out, and I really think people like me owe a lot to them, it seemed in the early 80s and the mid-80s to me that it would be very difficult 
to have a career in politics as a lesbian. But of course, things are completely different now. We have equality in Scotland and England, and we have strong voices in all parties who are openly gay. So I don't really think I have experienced any discrimination as a result of being gay. I think now at the moment, there is a degree of lesbophobia in society. And I think that the debate around trans rights, unfortunately, some people have very much questioned the right of lesbians to have a voice in the LGBT movement. And I found that very upsetting. And as as you may know, last year I had to sue the Pink News for defamation because they published an article wrongly saying that I was being investigated for homophobia. This was all part of the backlash against me because I had dared to suggest that we needed a debate around the notion of self-identification. And I had dared to say that I thought there was a need to protect the existence of women-only and lesbian-only spaces. And as a result of that, some men in the LGBT movement, and I'm sad to say also some women, decided that they would try and smear me. But they did. They weren't successful. Pink News had to pay out a substantial amount of money in damages, which I donated to the Lesbian and Gay Immigration Group, who I think are a really worthwhile charity. So it's it's been sad, and you know I've discussed with Simon Fanshaw and some of the other founders of Stonewall what's happening in the LGBT movement at the moment, and it's sad that there's that degree of infighting. But I think it's important to remember that we do have equality in the United Kingdom. Lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people do have equal rights in both Scotland and England and that's something really good that we should celebrate. Yeah, on the Gender Recognition Act, it's clearly a very thorny issue, also specifically for the SNP. You've been very vocal about your concerns about potential changes to that. I was wondering, do you worry that this is, in a way, because it does feel as though the debate has become so loud at times the level of abuse that Mm. it no longer is a debate and perhaps free speech is under threat on that issue. Yeah, I mean, I'm a very strong believer in in free speech and I'm very grateful to the spectator for the strong line they've taken on free speech. I sometimes think that the left could learn a bit from the right on the strong stance the right take on free speech. And it's very important to bear in mind that if free speech is quashed in this area of debate, it could be quashed in other areas of debate, and that would be very bad for our society and our democracy. But I think, you know, as I've tried to make clear on a number of occasions, is I support equal rights for trans people. What I have concerns about is a policy of self-identification And I'm keen to protect the right of women in certain circumstances to have women-only spaces. That right is currently protected under the Equality Act. And some of us have legitimate concerns that some of the proposals to make it easier for trans people to get a gender recognition certificate potentially undermine the sex-based protections in the Equality Act. And when expressing concern about these matters, I'm drawing on my experience as somebody who worked for several years, as I said, as a sex crimes prosecutor, and I'm particularly aware of the vulnerability of women and girls and the need for women-only space in certain circumstances. So I think we ought to be able to have a debate about this without people throwing around terms such as homophobe or transphobe 
And unfortunately, a small minority in the trans rights movement have done that. Equally, I have many, I know many trans people and I have trans friends who don't take that position and want to have a balanced discussion about this. So it's not about taking away anyone's rights. It's about balancing out rights and making sure that in making it easier to get a gender recognition certificate for trans people, we don't undermine women's hard-won sex-based protections. And just on that very briefly, would you say your party and your SNP colleagues have been supportive of your position? Well, I think it's, it's well known that there's a debate about this in the SNP. I and a number of other leading SNP politicians wrote a letter to the newspapers expressing our concern about the Gender Recognition Act reforms. And I think it's fair to say that there has been a lively debate about this within the Scottish National Party. And I'm very keen on debate, but I'm also very keen on debate not being shut down and people being able to voice their legitimate concerns without being tarred with the brush of transphobe. And just looking back to arriving in Parliament, I was wondering, you now want, kept your seat three times, which for Scotland means you've got a pretty safe seat, <laughs> given <laughs> how, how often they switch. And there's something, what has surprised you about Parliament? You mentioned the fact that you feel there's been more misogyny in politics than in, in your legal yeah. career. Has that been something in Parliament? Sometimes, yeah, I think there is sometimes a tendency on the shouting down of people to happen more to women than it happens to men. But then you've seen what's happened to my colleague Ian Blackford. Unfortunately, an element in the Conservative Party seemed to think it's wise to shout him down. It simply increases support for the SNP in Scotland when they do that. And when I talk about misogyny in politics, I think it's more generally, I think it occurs in all the political parties And certainly it's been my experience. I mean, I think it's fair to say that I sometimes get tired with the brush of somebody who has a big ego. And that's because... (laughs) Any truth in that? (laughs) Well, I'm not... You know, I'm I'm a fairly feisty individual and I'm not prepared to be sidelined in debates by men. And I think that goes on a lot in politics. It goes on in my party and it goes on in other parties where men try to sideline women. And feisty women like myself and Dr Philippa Whitford get branded as egomaniacs simply by wanting to have a voice in the debate, whereas men with our experience and professional background, people would just assume that we would have a voice in the debate. So that's where I think the misogyny lies in politics. And talking to friends in both the Conservative and the Labour Party, I know they have similar experiences. Now, looking to the EU referendum, you campaigned strongly for Remain. And last year, can't really describe last year in a sentence when it comes to UK politics, but we can call it hectic. Insane. (laughs) (laughs) Now, probably one of the most hectic or insane moments was clearly around prorogation. So Boris Johnson decides to prorogue Parliament. The government say they have the legal advice, which shows this is legitimate. And around that time, you take action and you start a legal challenge, first through the Scottish courts. And I think it's fair to say that within Westminster, it wasn't really seen as something that was necessarily going to go that far. I got the sense that when people were talking, people had almost accepted, and this could be a bubble issue, that prorogation was going to happen. So what was your thinking behind that? Can you talk us through basically when you decided to take the government to court? Well, already over the summer, when the, during the Conservative leadership campaign, there was talk of proroguing Parliament. So some of us in politics and lawyers already over the summer were discussing about how it would be necessary to try and take action to prevent Boris Johnson from doing that or whoever was going to become 
leader and looked pretty likely it was going to be him. My thinking behind it was simply this. What happened was that the Prime Minister of minority government, a government that couldn't command a majority in Parliament, shut down Parliament so that he could get his own way. My thinking was that it would be extraordinary if the British Constitution found that to be an acceptable state of affairs. That's the sort of thing that normally happens in a dictatorship. Now, Mr Johnson has a majority now, albeit based in England. He doesn't need to shut down Parliament because he's got a big majority and can get his way. But that was very different last August, September, when he shut Parliament down. So my view was that sometimes people have a very one-dimensional view of the British Constitution, as though Westminster can pretty much do what it likes. But I felt that, you know, you've got to remember that the British Constitution is not just simply the English Constitution writ large. Britain's not a unitary state. Britain's a union of nations. And it's very much in the Scottish legal tradition that neither the government nor the monarch are above the law. So it was really great when Lady Hale opined that that's also the English legal tradition, which I would have hoped it was, because I think, you know, had the Supreme Court found against us, then they would basically have been saying, yeah, it's okay under the British Constitution for a minority government to shut down Parliament because Parliament's being a nuisance. And that would have been whole unacceptable. When that result came through, how did you celebrate? Uh, Well, I remember giving an interview to the Scotsman saying that it took me two or three days to have any time to celebrate because it was just such an intense round of media interviews. But yeah, I mean, when I got home, myself and my girlfriend cracked open a bottle of champagne and there's been quite a lot of champagne swilling on and off with various people, including many of my friends at the Scottish Bar as a result of the decision because we feel very proud that the decision was very much made in Scotland. Before the unanimous victory in the Supreme Court, we'd had a unanimous victory in the inner house of the Court of Session, Scotland's Supreme Court. And so I think a lot of lawyers from political view, all political viewpoints and none in Scotland are very proud that 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 was a, it was Scot, a Scot and Scottish lawyers that led that case. And did you have any Conservative MPs get in touch with you and say, you know, that they respected what you were doing or they thought you'd made the right decision? I mean, yes. Obviously don't I name. think it was very difficult for them to be involved because there were 75 petitioners in my case. I was a lead petitioner, but there were, there was a handful of peers, but there were also Labour MPs, Lib Dem MPs and non-aligned MPs yeah. and Plaid Cymru involved and, and, and quite a few of my SNP colleagues as well. But I did speak with Conservative members of Parliament who were very much with us in spirit. Now, one person you worked alongside as part of this legal challenge was Johnny and Morn QC. How was that experience? A passionate Remain campaigner. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know Jolian before the Article 50 litigation, which I, I was also involved in. But obviously, I've worked quite closely with him on that, on the prorogation litigation, and then on a case that he and I and a chap called Dale Vince brought to try and make sure that Boris Johnson obeyed promises he'd made in the light of the prorogation case not to take us out without a deal. So, yes, I've got to know Jolyon fairly well as a result of that. Yeah, he's recently made headlines himself over Boxing Day, actually, which I can't just have to ask you about. For those who haven't been on Twitter, actually reading any national newspaper the day after Boxing Day, Jolyon tweeted that he had killed a fox, beaten a fox to death, who was going for his hands while wearing his wife's kimono. (laughs) Have have you spoken to him since? I haven't actually spoken to Jolyon since that, although we are meeting up quite soon with our legal team from the prorogation case to have a much delayed celebratory lunch. But I mean, clearly Jolyon's taken a lot of stick for that, if you'll forgive the impression, the expression rather. Look, 
I'm not going to kick someone when they're down. You know, Jolene and I worked well on those legal cases and, you know, he's already had it in the neck over this, so I'm not going to add to his woes over it. Yeah, if he does need legal advice, though, <laughs> you're there. <laughs> well, he'll need, he'll, he will need an English, a lawyer qualified in, in English law because, of course, the Fox assault occurred in London, I believe. If it is an assault, of course, it might not be an assault. It might have had some legitimacy, but I think I better not say any more about that. <laughs> we'll leave that there for now. Now, before we just move into the final section of this podcast, I just wanted to ask you one question related to that legal challenge, which is, There were points last year where, as you mentioned, the government did not have a working majority and the SNP were working alongside other opposition parties where there was common ground to almost a remote control government to get this various things they wanted through. The legal challenge clearly stopped the prorogation. It meant it was much harder for Boris Johnson in the chamber. But MPs still allowed him to have an early election. Now, the SNP, along with Lib Dems, put down a motion. They didn't vote for it in the end but now we have a situation where Brexit is happening as well, with retrospect do you think it was a good idea to have had the election when they did because very good results for the SNP in Scotland but as someone who's campaigned so passionately to stay in the EU you it feels a bit like a mixed bag well look the people of England have spoken fairly clearly now I, I think in in the general election and I think Brexit is going to happen And I'm the last person to stand in the way of a democratic mandate. And I think Boris Johnson has a democratic mandate to deliver Brexit for England. He doesn't have one in Scotland. Now, I did all I could to try and secure a revisiting of the Brexit referendum for the whole of the United Kingdom. That's not going to happen now. My focus from now on will be to ensure that the democratic mandate in Scotland for Scotland's right to choose, Scotland's right to choose to resume being an independent nation. It's important to remember this isn't like Yorkshire seceding from England. The United Kingdom's not a unitary state. Scotland and England came together in an act of union in 1707. That act of union can be... one One of the parties in that act of union can change their mind. And we're in an extraordinary situation at the moment where Boris Johnson has basically said that there can never be another Scottish independence referendum. Now, that's a very different position from the position taken by previous Conservative... Well, for previous Conservative Prime Ministers, Theresa May said now is not the time, implying that there was a time when it would be right. Mrs Thatcher herself recognised that if there was a majority of Scottish MPs at Westminster, that could be grounds for negotiating independence. Now, I'd like to see a second independence referendum... And I'm not alone in that view. And many people in Scotland have changed their minds about the union as a result of Brexit. And I think if Boris Johnson persists in this completely unsustainable and undemocratic position of ignoring the reality of what Scots have voted for, then he's going to come a cropper politically and possibly also legally. Well, what Boris Johnson has said to that and says repeatedly at Prime Minister's questions, is that Scottish independence, as agreed by the SNP, was a once-in-a-generation event in terms of the referendum, and a generation has not yet passed. But if we look at the situation today, I wondered, Joanna, how do you think you can get to a second independence referendum if Boris Johnson is clearly just going to keep saying no? Is there any other route? Well, I think I think what we've learned from the constitutional litigation that has arisen from the situation surrounding the Brexit situation, both the Article 50 case, which I was involved in, and the prorogation case, is 
that, as I said earlier, the British constitution is a bit more complex than what some people understood it to be, which was that Westminster can pretty much do what it likes. And there's a very strong argument, which is supported by many lawyers in Scotland and and my friend and colleague Aidan O'Neill, who led the Article 50 and the prorogation litigation, has produced a detailed opinion arguing that it may well be within the competence of the Scottish Parliament itself to hold an advisory referendum. And so that's the weight of legal opinion, that it may well be within the competence of the Scottish Parliament. And so that might be one way forward for the Scottish Parliament to pass a bill to do that. Of course, it would then no doubt be challenged. Its competence would be challenged in the UK Supreme Court and the Supreme Court would have to make a determination. But I would just remind people that commentators were very negative about the chances of success in the Article 50 case and the prorogation case. They turned out to be wrong about that. So we shouldn't ignore the possibility that the constitution of the modern British constitution, which is a constitution of a number of nations, not just one, might allow Scotland to have a victory on that front in litigation. But I'd stress that I don't see litigation as a shortcut to independence. There has to be a vehicle for the majority of Scots to indicate they've changed their mind since the 2014 referendum. And the First Minister has said that she's going to say before the end of January what the next steps should be. So like everyone else, I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say. But I'm just pointing out that Boris Johnson's current position is unsustainable, not only politically, but it may also be unsustainable legally. Now, just to close this podcast, a few uh, quick questions. Um, (laughs) one, One being, you obviously had a Catholic upbringing. You're no longer a practising Catholic. I would stress, though, that I have a lot of time for the Catholic Church. You know, I think they they take strong positions, particularly the current Pope on Peace and Justice, the Scottish Catholic International Aid Fund, which I'm a big supporter of, does fantastic work at home and abroad. So I suppose I would say I'm not a practising Catholic, but I still see myself as a Catholic, cultural Catholic and a believer. Well, what I wonder is whether you had any sympathy for Rebecca Long-Bailey, the Labour leadership contender. Because yes, I do. Because she is a Catholic and recently it sometimes feels like religion and politics are very difficult to bring together and her bid has received a lot of criticism and negative publicity and quite personal attacks on her because of her Catholic views. Well, look, she expressed a view about the time limit on abortions. Abortion is a conscience issue. Political parties don't have policy on this. In the SNP, it's a conscience issue. And there's a divergence of views in the SNP. Many of my colleagues who are practising Catholics are pro-life. I'm in favour of a a woman's right to choose. But that's a conscience clause. I think that has to be respected. So I, I deplore people using religion to attack people in politics. We've seen it with Tim Farron as well, haven't we? And Jacob Rees-Mogg, so of course... I mean, Tim Farron's views... I mean, I think, you know, equal rights is not a conscience matter in the SNP. Our policy is equal rights. And I think, you know, Tim Farron's views on that were quite dodgy. But I think there are certain issues, such as abortion, which are conscience issues for a very good reason. Now, very briefly, you gave an interview recently where you talked about the fact that Alex Salmond was one of the greatest leaders and the, uh, that you didn't speak to Nicola Sturgeon much, which got quite a lot of follow quite quickly. And I think people want to suggest there was a big, you know, SNP female divide. So I was wondering, firstly, have you spoken to her much since the interview? <laughs> or, or do you think perhaps it wouldn't be in the same treatment if, if you were saying you hadn't spoken to a male colleague? 
I think it was a bit misconstrued. I mean, I think, you know, it was in the context of, I, was, I think I was being asked whether I was an Alex Salmond person or a Nicola Sturgeon person. And I said, no, I'm neither. I'm a Joanna Cherry person. And I don't like this tendency in the political commentariat, if you'll yeah. forgive me, to divide people in the SNP into Alex Salmond supporters or Nicola Sturgeon supporters. I think both have been great leaders. What I have said is I've gone out on a limb to say, you know, Alex Salmond's obviously about to face trial, face trial on very serious issues. He denies any criminality and I put my trust in the Scottish legal system and the jury system. But I was brought up not to abandon my friends when they're in trouble and that's why I have stood by Alec and I'm very much a supporter of the presumption of innocence. But I think Nicola Sturgeon has great leadership qualities as well. She's widely respected. I was at a conference this weekend where there were a lot of French delegates and Nicola has a very good reputation internationally. So it would be true to say that I probably speak to Alec more often than I speak to Nicola, but then Nicola's not often in London. She's running the country. Alec's down here a lot more because he's not running the country any longer. Now, we can't talk much about the legal case, but there are a lot of your political opponents in Scotland. I think some in the Scottish Conservatives, some perhaps Scottish Labour, who are in a way banking on this, bringing negative publicity to the SNP and potentially building up to the Scottish Parliament elections, that being a damaging process for your party. Are, are you worried about the next couple of months for your party? I think the next couple of months are going to be difficult. But I think those banking on trouble for the SNP and the Yes movement are underestimating the strength of the SNP and the strength of the wider Yes movement and the strength of support across Scottish society and across Scottish political parties for the notion of Scotland's right to choose its constitutional future and not to have to be dragged out of the European Union against its will. So I think the next two or three months could be rocky, but I think we are strong enough to survive them. The SNP is not about an individual. It's about a movement for self-determination. And I think it's a movement that's unstoppable. Two final questions. First being, you mentioned that you hope Nicola Sturgeon was the first of many female first ministers to come. (laughs) Now, it probably hasn't escaped your attention that you are often written up as a potential successor to Nicola Sturgeon. Would you be tempted by that role? Well, as I said earlier, I would very much like to serve in the Parliament of an independent Scotland. There's no vacancy for SNP leader at the moment. Were there to be a vacancy in the future, then I would consider my position carefully. And a question to end the podcast that we ask everyone who comes on, which is not what is the best advice you've ever been given, because we once asked someone that, Lionel Shriver, and she told us it was a boring question. So (laughs) what is the worst advice you've ever been given and, and hopefully ignored? The worst advice I've ever been given is not to take risks and I have ignored it. I've I'm always been a bit of a risk taker. You know, when I'm, I left my job as, as a solicitor to go to the bar, lots of people said to me in the mid 90s, oh, you know, you're a woman, you don't come from a legal family, you won't do well. And I ignored that advice and, and I did do reasonably well. Equally, when I decided to take the leap from the bar into politics, a lot of people said to me, you're mad, you can earn a lot more money at the bar. Politics is a dirty business. That turned out to be correct on both fronts. But I have no regret about taking the leap into politics because I feel I'm doing something socially useful and something about which I'm very passionate and I've really enjoyed being involved in politics for the last few years. It's certainly not been dull. That's fair. (laughs) Thank you, Joanna. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you for listening. And if you have any ideas of guests and people you'd like to hear on this podcast, do get in touch. Just send us an email at podcast at spectator.co.uk. 